Mary Lou Luther, editor of the International Fashion Syndicate, writes the award-winning Clotheslines column, a question-and-answer fashion advice feature read weekly by more than 5 million. In addition to her syndicated newspaper column, Luther is the creative director of the Fashion Group International, a nonprofit organization for the dissemination of information on fashion, beauty, and related fields. Her twice-yearly audiovisual overviews of the New York, London, Milan, and Paris ready-to-wear shows are must-see reading for industry leaders. The former fashion editor of the Los Angeles Times, Chicago Tribune, and Des Moines Register is included in Who's Who's in America. She won the Council of Fashion Designer of America's Eugenia Shepard Award for Fashion Journalism, the Women in Communication Award, the Accessories Council Mary Lou Luther Award for Fashion Journalism, the French Ministry of Culture's Chevalier Award, and the Fashion Group International's Fashion Legend Award. Her essays have appeared in the Rudy Gernreich book, Tara Mugler, Fashion Fetish Fantasy, The Color of Fashion, Todd Oldham, Without Boundaries, and Yoli Work. A book on Geoffrey Bean, done in collaboration with the designer, was published in September 2005. Thank you very much for doing this for me, Mary Lou. You're a very special person in my life. So Mary Lou Luther and her husband, very early in my career, um, literally saved my life. And I am thrilled and honored that you agreed to do this podcast with me. So thank you very much. You're very welcome. Should we kind of begin at the beginning? Absolutely, absolutely. Well, with you, to me, we had met before, but the day we really got to know each other was when we met back in the 70s, and I'm not sure the date you may recall, Mm -hmm. Um, but we met at 8 o'clock in the morning. Uh, It was a prearranged meeting, uh, and it was at 56th and 5th. And uh, I was on my way from Los Angeles to through New York to Europe to cover the collections. And uh, while in New York, I always made appointments to see designers one-on-one. You arrived at the appointed time and place looking frazzled and beset and upset. And I asked if you were okay. You said no that your husband had left you the night before, your mother was in the hospital, and you didn't even have a sewing machine to start all over again. I volunteered that I thought my husband, Arthur Imperato, uh, who owned a trade newspaper uh, featuring specializing in home sewing, I thought he could quite likely provide you with a sewing machine, give you a sewing machine. He did. And that was the way I remember this first stuff. How about you, Norma? Yes. So, um, oh my God, your description totally is overwhelming me right now um, because I've I, actually I'm feeling You're teary. You're reliving it. Yes. Because I first of all I left Eddie, and I'll explain. I'm sorry. By, yeah, but. Um, but I forgot about my mother's health at the time and what was happening with her um, and how I was quite responsible for her care, too. Um, so, yes, that was how we met, which is why you are embedded in my psyche forever, and, and for, Arthur is, too. And for me, as well, forever. So I, I should start to tell everybody... Um, more about you so they can appreciate um, the circumstance even more. Mary Lou is um, one of those unforgettable women who truly is not only a professional, but her craft is 
everything, the perfection of the information, the way she writes about it, her love of fashion oozes out in every word she writes. And she brought the highest level of understanding designers, what they do, the atmosphere that they work in, the flavor of their personalities. Their sign of the zodiac. Every sign, everything, to readers everywhere. And she had the extra challenge to make it entertaining and exciting for <laughs> Los Angeles, who would not, you would not think of as a fashion city, but of course everybody loves fashion. But your style, your writing style, and your energy made it like little movies. It made it, it made it all come to life for everybody. And I was always so taken by the way you wrote about design and designers and fashion. And I would read every word to, to really get an understanding of what was going on. And then when we met and I finally got to know you even better, I couldn't wait to hear about you seeing the collections in Europe and talking about them and not wanting you to leave at all and just take every word that you could say. So you, uh, and I can't just speak for myself because I know so many designers uh, treasure your um, help and support, but also the respect and the way you lift fashion to um, this level of um, artistry that sometimes can get doubted, but you've always taken it to the highest, and I'm thanking you for oh. everyone. So when I met you, I, I knew I was meeting this great editor and that we had met before, but when you asked me that question of, you know, if I was okay, I was so not okay because I'd spent, uh, I was married at 19. We started our business not too long after. Um, and my husband uh, was a, a very sweet, loving, kind uh, young man who was studying in the States. He was born and raised in Iran. And uh, not raised, he was raised in London, actually, went to boarding schools there and then came here. And when we met, we were literally two lost souls. My, my, the situation for me uh, at home was difficult, so the only way you left home was to get married if you were a young woman in the early 60s, and it, it just you didn't go live with somebody. So we both got married and gave each other a home. Uh, and he, I might add, was extremely handsome and not hard to look at and uh, was very sweet and kind. Um, and then we had the business together. He was going to school and had, took care of the store. And I was working at the airlines. And then I would come home and come back to the sample room and sew samples. And everybody knew him, and nobody really knew me. And I was in the sample room hiding away, extremely shy. I don't think I, I think you remember then, I was very shy. Yes. And so I, for me to even tell you that I was not okay, it was shocking to, to hear. So you know my state was desperate. Oh, yes. So then um, what had happened through time was he got involved in drugs like everybody at the time. And this kind, sweet, loving young man became another person. And my self-esteem and my sort of soul 
was um, being challenged every day. And it was embarrassing and humiliating very often to be in some of the situations that I was in with him. And I finally, one day when the sales girl he was dating uh, was telling me what she wanted to de- wanted me to make for the store because she had now appointed herself the designer. I just the ceiling over my sample over my cutting table fell, and I turned to Kama, who is still with me, um, and I said, "I think Confucius says when ceiling falls on head, time to leave." So I left. Really? The ceiling really fell? It fell. And so I looked at the sign, and when I left, I had $98 in the bank, which was part of the strategy he had. If I don't have money, I can't go anywhere. He knew I was extremely shy and was pretty... What sign of the zodiac? Sag. But it's it's just he he was... sort of not really himself in, in during that period of time. So in any case, a lot of men can be insecure of women who develop strength and independence. And I think he was afraid that that might happen. And he sort of created it because I wouldn't go anywhere if I was even okay, never mind happy, happy. And so when I met you, I was living in an apartment that didn't have window covers. I was sleeping on a mattress. Um, I had no idea of what I would do. Uh, My mother wasn't well and had to go in the hospital. And at the same time, my brother, who also had a drug problem, was in Las Vegas and he decided to gamble and called me to ask if he could borrow money. And I felt like, what the hell is going on? Like, what am I going to do? I've got, I have so many people to be responsible for. I have, I've lived this wonderful, exciting life of, of discovering that I could be creative and now what? And from the minute I met you and the minute Arthur was generously supportive, I started to meet one person after another who just could not be more generous. It was you like you opened this door for people who I didn't even know knew I existed. I I want to talk about that later. Well, then, okay. Um, Can I go on? Yes, please. Okay. I, I just, uh, one of the questions is, uh, of your many, many firsts, like the first athleisure sweats to leave the playing field for the streets, that was 1981, the first clothes made from parachutes, the first swimwear with cheeky high-rise leg openings, the first bridal party where the bride and the attendants all dressed in the same design, but in different colors. The bride, of course, wore white. Uh, the first pre-80s shoulder-padded precursors of fashion androgyny. And, ta-da, what you were just talking about, um, arguably the most important fashion inventions ever the sleeping bag coat, come puffer, come puffa first, <laughs> and then puffer. Um, I love the backstory here. To wit, in 1975, when much of the fashion world was uh, just consumed with peasant uprisings and gypsies and Russian revolutions, you were awakening in a sleeping bag in uh, an apartment with no furniture and you were dreaming up, literally, the sleeping bag coat. Did I get this right, Norma? Well, I actually, the sleeping bag coat um, was, I, I dreamt it up on a camping trip because I used to go camping all the time. I loved camping and canoeing and, and the rapids. And, and so I was really into the hippy-dippy culture of the 70s. And so... 
I took my sleeping bag from a camping trip and cut it up into a coat when I got home because I was freezing one night going into the woods to to find a place to go to the bathroom and I thought I'm putting sleeves on this when I get back home. I have to say my sleeping bag came in very handy because I had the mattress and I had my sleeping bag coat. And so you're not wrong. So in it was the really that, a mattress that you were just sleeping. Well, I had I had my mattress and I had my sleeping bag coat, and and it sounds so incredible now um, that that moment in time could have gone in any direction, um, but there was a certain amount of hope just in the fact that. Here I have a sleeping bag coat that gives me hope about my potential. And here I'm on a mattress that I didn't even have sheets for. And, uh, and you know, I kept the lights off because I couldn't, there was nothing on the windows. So I, I saw despair in that. But I don't remember... I cried. I've cried many nights through my life, and it, it, it could happen tonight too that I cry. But I wake up in the morning, and I always think there's another chance. There's another opportunity. I need to. I need to take. I need to try. And so, after I met with you, and I was honest and and open which I would never have done before ever I would never complain to anybody or say mm -hmm. that I that something was wrong ever um, I then realized that if you're honest with people they are extremely helpful uh, if you ask questions people want to help and give you answers and so I encourage that with people now who want to meet with me or talk about something. I am there. You can ask Jennifer, my assistant, if somebody asks to meet me or to talk about something, I tell her, you got to figure out a way to make time in my schedule. So you did it for me, but you also taught me a lesson that if I tell the truth, um, people understand they don't judge you. They don't look at you like you're a pathetic soul. They think, whoa, wait a minute. There, there's, there's a way to make this work. And you showed me through your personality the most positive way something like that could go. Thank you, thank you. I don't deserve all that. Yes, but you I'm do. going on now. <laughs> Um, and instead of um, counting and recounting your multitudinous awards, I'd like to tell you the story of how you made retailing history with retailing legend Phil Miller. It was 1979, and Miller, then the president of Neiman Marcus, was in Beverly Hills in his newly created store in Beverly Hills. Um, and he was wonder, wondering about ways to separate the new store from his competitors who were already there. As I was talking with him shortly after his arrival at the store, he was bemoaning the fact that the important designers were already positioned elsewhere. He asked me if I could recommend a designer that he could work with on an exclusive basis. I suggested Norma, Norma Kamali, you. As, as they say, it became a marriage made in heaven. And years later, every time I saw Phil Miller, he would ask, how, how, have you got another Kamali <laughs> up your sleeve? I didn't. <laughs> Do you remember? That, yeah, that, so I, I remember, thank you again, by the no. way. That was such a great invitation. So um, Eddie Kamali was 
convinced that we should have a store in Los Angeles. Yes, yeah, so you, you did have. Yeah, and um, we had a store on Cannon in Beverly Hills, and um, we had, this was the 70s, mm-hmm. in early 70s, and we had great clients there, every celebrity you could think of in music, film, um, it was just, um, and you know, nobody knew who we were, but they found us and, um, and we did a great, um, business and we had a girl, uh, Janine, who was so special and so wonderful. Uh, and she moved to Los Angeles to run the store for us. And she ended up, her boyfriend, and then ended up marrying Hunt Sales, who was the drummer for David Bowie. And she was the prototype of what Bette Midler was inspired to mm-hmm. become visually. Uh, and so she was a very special person, and everybody absolutely loved her. So we had a very busy store. We had a lot of business. We had great clients. And then um, we were approached about this this opportunity at Neiman's. And I was leaving Eddie. The, the, we were going through this whole transition. And then Janine, uh, when, when I did that separation, then Janine agreed to, since we were going to close that store, to go to Neiman's, and I picked a space. They were very generous. I can Phil, see it. Phil was, I mean, he was so, where do you want to be? He said, I think that space, you know, it was his balcony right over the entrance. I think that space is great, and I said, I would love it. And I, uh, and Janine made it home, and everybody came to Neiman's, and so everybody was very thrilled with me and Janine to get all of these wonderful people to come to Neiman's. And one of the great benefits, not only was Phil just a really special guy to work with, but I would go to all of the Neiman Marcus meetings, and the family was still involved, and the the that was retailing at its, its perfection finest. Yes. and finest. So <clears throat> yes. I was very fortunate to sit in on some of these meetings mm. that the Marcus family would be holding in the Beverly Hill store, which was an important store for them. Oh, yeah. And uh, so I learned so much from from having that collaboration and it it did extremely well for a long period of time. And then that was all of the our special clothes. But then when I did the um, sweats with Joan's Apparel, I felt like we had the entire store because we were in every we were in the contemporary department, we were in the swimwear department. We were. Yes. And I thought. Oh my God! People are going to be so sick of me. I need to like chill. This is there's too much, too much, too much. No. But uh, that was so great. And I was just in Los Angeles recently, and I was thinking about somebody said, "Oh, there's Neiman's," and I went, "I know, I know." <laughs> yeah, I was there. Uh, I remember the first opening the door and walking in, and mm-hmm. and how great that that. The early years there are extremely exciting. And I remember having a store in Canon and how that culture and that world was so different and um, yet for us so much the same. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So that was great. Thank you again, Mary. No, don't be silly. I, I My first trip to Dallas um, as a reporter um, I'll never forget seeing Stanley Marcus. He walked through that store every day. Do you know of any CEO today who would do that? It's different. I mean, it's it's almost like um, 
They were pioneers yes. in, and the, in those, service. Those two weeks they did every yeah. fall honoring people yeah. from abroad. Yeah. Very special family, very special, just like the Walton family. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Walmart is what it is mm-hmm. because there's a dedicated a founder and dedicated and Nordstrom. Yep. It's like those are the kinds of things that people really appreciate. Yes, and <clears throat> and I I'm very hopeful about retail in the future. I think we still are in our disruption, sort of the 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 crumbling down phase, but the appreciation for the perfection of service is even higher now than it was then. I Mm -hmm. think more people because of the global aspect of service and what we're seeing through Amazon or the possibilities of artificial intelligence and how to, how to make lives more perfect. Um, I think there's an opportunity. It will never be the same, but I am so happy to have mm. seen Stanley Marcus do yeah. his thing oh, yeah. and have these talks where everyone was mesmerized. Everyone knew mm. that they were in a meeting that was going to affect and change their lives, and every one of those meetings were, were like events that people couldn't wait to go to exactly and they were the first to do major events yeah and then oh and i should remember his name he started at neiman marcus then he was the ceo at bergdorf's oh with don Mello. they were they were at the same store also here in manhattan oh gosh well anyway i heard him speak um maybe five years ago uh and he was telling how when he was at Neiman Marcus, they had one customer that they just took care of everything that she wore, and she was going to South America, and so they dressed her for that. She called them from South America saying, I, now I have to go to Canada and I have nothing to wear. They flew down a person from Neiman Marcus with the clothes for her. I mean, do you think anyone would do that today? That's it was so amazing mm-hmm. to hear that. Even. Yeah. Well, it's a it, you know obviously there are new ways that we oh, have service yes, and now, I'll, but can, that but that was uh, it's just like a great hotel experience or a great yeah. any anything you can do where you are extending beyond what's expected is so appreciated on 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 any scale okay and that's the next subject here is in addition of course to your fashion first you told us that it was what it was like to be the first designer to go online i want you to tell us but what i remember i know it was 1996 am i right in recalling that when you received an order you tried to anticipate possible sizing problems, and so you always sent two sizes? Well, or it, is that so, right? so the early part of, there are two, two stories together there. So in, um, when I got my first job, which was not in the fashion industry, but in, um, at an airline because I yes. wanted to travel, I was in an office sitting at a Univac computer, and the computer was, I mean, I couldn't even appreciate totally what it was about because my office skills were none, but I realized each day that there was information that was coming through this computer from the plane and from information that was just like, where is this coming from? This is amazing. And so I became obsessed with what the possibilities were with this machine. It was just like a box with a keypad Mm -hmm. at the bottom. Yes, I've seen those. And so fast forward to mid-90s, and I'm I'm, I'm not at the airlines now for quite some time, 
But my memory of that, I, and I didn't think it was ever going to come into real life or into mm -hmm. my world. I, I had no knowledge of the possibilities. But I heard and that there would be a possibility where you could have a computer and you could have a website. And people could directly get information from me and there would be no buyers, no people in between the selling, the, the product and the selling process. And I was so excited, I, I just couldn't breathe. And of course, sometimes, and I'm still, I don't know if I'm ever gonna learn this lesson, I jump too fast, too early, because I get so excited, so I immediately, how do I get a website? I'm getting the website. I, I'm, I have the website, and I'm thrilled. I do this whole window with mannequins with computers attached to their necks, so they were all, and I had wires and things all Ooh, over. Do you it. have pictures of that? I'm not sure oh. where they are. They're somewhere. Oh, that's amazing. And I thought, Oh my God, finally. And then it was like, oh, where is everybody? There's <laughs> nobody. There are like six of us. And I thought, oh no, I guess I have to wait a little bit. And so my excitement, though, was still alive and well uh, even today because of the potential of having direct contact yes. with other human beings who could connect back with you to get feedback from everybody. Mm -hmm. I thought, how incredible is that? And, and so... And interestingly to me, how slow the stores were to realize that. Well, obviously. So one of the things I did during that period of time and it really came about with our celebrity clients was, um, I remember Janet Jackson was just really, uh, this was in the 80s, like mid 80s, as I recall. She was in, in her yes. real heyday and she was a great customer and just so fabulous. And you know, everybody bought directly. They they would have assistants, but they didn't have stylists choosing for them. So we really worked directly with her and her assistant on what she wanted. So when she was on tour, which seemed always, we would send her boxes of clothes that we knew were her type of clothes, and we pretty much knew her size, or we would put in another size. And then we would send them and she would choose what she wanted and send back what she didn't. And so we started to do that for our celebrity clients. And then one day I said, why can't everybody shop like a celebrity? And so we started this brand name, Shop Like a Celebrity, and we would send boxes to people. This is before they had their websites. We sent boxes to people um, on spec, we would know them well enough. It wouldn't be a, a random new client, but someone we knew, mm -hmm. and we would send them the box if they didn't live in New York or even in New York, and they then could try the clothes on at home, decide what they wanted, and provide super service on our end in communication. Mm -hmm. And then when we saw that this was working. Um, we continued um, and moved that forward, and then it evolved into Try Before You Buy, where you could give us your credit card. We would not charge the credit card until you decided what you wanted. And so we had Try Before You Buy for many years. And then when the website and Try Before You Buy came together in, when they finally connected, for clients that we didn't know as well, especially for a swimsuit, we would say, we'll put in two sizes, we'll do this. And they, and they again, would only get charged for whatever it is that they decided to buy. 
And then I recently, maybe about two or two years ago, um, Amazon has tried before you buy, and they I think they own that name now. Uh-huh. So that's a really incredible concept yeah. that I'm happy that. Oh, and I didn't find, know. Yeah, that. no, that's I was like, try before you buy. Whoa, wait a minute, I see that before. <laughs> that's mine. <laughs> I've seen that. So, um, so the 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 service aspect of connecting with people um, really comes through, well, let's look at the situation. If it's good for celebrities, why not? Why isn't it good for Mary Lou or somebody else? We know what Mary Lou likes and then just make the offer. There's no extra charge in it. It's just a service. So um, so we still do that. And, and what has happened now is shopping online basically is try before you buy because your return you you can you can pretty much shop in that same way because returning is so easy that's fantastic yeah um moving right along so now that um we know something of your formidable achievements in the past tell us about your future um as someone involved in the women's movement, women's lib, feminism, how do you see today's Me Too movement and its effect on gender neutrality? What, what do you think? So I, I think one of the, we should probably refer to the 70s and the feminist movement yes. at that time as the first my first experience with feminism, obviously, in what, like Ms. Magazine was seventy-one. Well, it was Ms. and it was also Cosmo. Yeah, oh, remember yes. Helen Gurley Brown I was telling do. everybody you can have an orgasm too, yes. and, and it yes. was like how many of them on the cover of Cosmo? Yes, and um, and at the same time. I didn't realize that I was going to become a symbol of feminism by leaving Eddie. I mean, Mm -hmm. I was just trying to keep my soul. I wasn't thinking of myself as a feminist. Um, I was so shy and inhibited, nobody would ever look at me as somebody setting the uh, course of action for women. And so when I left and started my own company um, and didn't have partners and didn't have um, a board of directors or doing this just on my own and my logo becoming on my own, Norma Kamali, I started to receive so many letters from people who either read stories about what I'd done or started to hear about what I'd done and more and more and more would say, I don't like my life. I don't want to, I don't want to give up my soul. I need to, I need to look at my life and change it. And so, so many women would say, if you're doing it, I'm going to, I'm going to try it too. And when I never, now I look at it and I say, I didn't have any examples of women who were doing this. I didn't think of it as a big sort of feminist statement. I didn't think about feminism as, at all. I was just saying, I want a creative life. I don't want to live under somebody's oppression basically I don't want this for myself I mm-hmm. want personal freedom and and it turns out because there I don't know other women at the time who were doing it and I'm sure they exist but the fact that I don't know them and maybe you know who they are too but there weren't a lot of women starting businesses no. becoming entrepreneurs so I didn't have an example I didn't have somebody to call to say, can you tell me how you do this or how do you You know, you had a big fan um, uh, in London with the wonderful store. Browns? Yes, Browns. Browns. She, um, I've always admired her. And uh, we were talking about you one day and she said, 
Well, Norma is just the most amazing, which her perception of what Hollywood was like and what it can be. And I had never thought about, I mm. think we talked about that once. Yeah. I never thought about your clothes as Hollywood. Mm. And I thought that was well, so interesting. Yeah. She, she, um, she, she was Bernstein, a leader. Yeah. Yes. And Joan Burstein. Joan Burstein. And, um, and so she was, there, there were so many supporters and, and she and her husband had yeah. Browns for oh. b- forever. Yeah. And, but I really didn't know w- that this was a feminist movement move that mm-hmm. I'd been making until so many women contacted me and I would go somewhere and people would, mm-hmm. women would say, thank you so much. And I was like, whoa, what are they thanking me for? I can't, and I, I was just like hanging on by my fingernails. I had no idea that this was so unique. And then fast forward to now and, and the Me Too movement and all of the phases in between, you know, for a long period of time, I have been really talking about objectification. I yes. even interviewed you once yeah. about uh, objectification and how women have been objecti- uh, objectified since the beginning of time, and we've just accepted it and accepted it, and it's really affected our self-esteem and, and our sense of our own power. And And so I was really so excited that this big, powerful push using social media and using the speed of sending information out was finally mm-hmm. crashing through the glass ceiling, crashing through objectification, just saying, enough, enough, enough. And so here we are today, and my thought is, I think that's great. But I also think we can't alienate men. We can't frighten people away from us. We have to take this energy and this power now to bring all of this together and to educate boys as mothers, educate the boys, and educate men through behavior that is kinder and more loving. Generation Z seems to be that they understand, mm-hmm. I think, more than other yeah. generations. Yeah. Gen Z, to me, are the blessing. Me too. We, we're so lucky that they are just born this way, and they're mm-hmm. born to accept, um, yes. and their generosity of spirit is just... And, uh, and then when you read, too, that they... Many of them have will take a break for weeks that they won't get on the computer or won't get on their iPad, and I think that too is, says a lot about them. Well, they're, they, yeah, I, I agree. They're very, um, they're very clear about their survival. They they understand the baby boomer impact. They understand the generations between baby boomer and millennials and then the millennials disrupting everything mm-hmm. turning everything upside down which needed to be done and it's still being done but it is extremely painful when you have to create change there's a lot of dead bodies left behind there's a lot of dirt and poop left behind and so they know their role is to clean that up Mm-hmm. And they're, they're starting with none of the prejudices or the fears or the um, anger mm-hmm. that the generations before have had. Or the typecasting. Well, none of that. Mm-hmm. There is not. It doesn't exist. No. And so they're... Uh, an absolute dream. Mm-hmm. I treasure them. Me I too. love them. Uh, in fact, uh, a Gen Z couple are going to interview me today too. And I, I'm, 
like you, I appreciate the fact there's clarity about the future in the fact that 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 generation exists. And we're just seeing the top end of it. There's Mm -hmm. still, you know, the eight-year-olds are the bottom end of it. So yes, exactly. look at what we have to that's coming our way. Exactly. It's very exciting. It is, indeed. Um, well, so I want to know what's next for your store here at 11 West 56th Street, a building complete with wellness center, cafe, holistic site, not to mention clothes and accessories. What's next for your temple of fitness health, style, beauty, and whatever cause you espouse. Is it gender-free, gender-fluid, gender-neutral clothes? Or I find it especially interesting that you are the one who has created some of the sexiest clothes on the fashion map, is now so interested in genderless clothes. Well... The, there's a few questions there. So the gender genderless is probably uh, a different word than gender fluid. Mm-hmm. Um, gender fluid means gender exists. Mm-hmm. The male female gender exists. In all of us, we have both. We have different quantities of it at different times. Sometimes we're more feminine than we are masculine. Sometimes, some days I am so masculine, I'm like, holy crap, you've been (laughs) very masculine today. And I want to dress masculine certain days. Mm -hmm. And certain days I just want to be about femme, girly girl. And some days it's a fluctuation of both. And I think that women are so lucky that we're so comfortable with that at this point. The more masculine we look, the cooler we may look. When we want to be feminine, we can be feminine. But the idea of this for men hasn't always been as comfortable as it is right now. In the 70s, when we saw Mick Jagger swooshing on stage, wearing women's clothes and makeup, nail polish, lipstick. Everybody looked at him and said, wow. They didn't say, oh my God, he's wearing girls' clothes. It was like, what is going on? He was appealing to men and appealing to women. And that energy is a non-judgmental energy and that's alive today and i have found the universe literally swooped me into this every circumstance one after the other including the most phenomenal editorials that we've been getting of men in my clothes i'm not making men's or women's clothes per se i'm making a collection i want to make originally I've always thought of it for women. Now on my website, we have a picture of a man and a picture of a woman wearing that same jacket. And in the label, there are two sizes, Mm -hmm. one for men and one for women. So anybody can wear it so the idea of a men's department or a women's department obviously is is going to be an old-fashioned idea the way Mm -hmm. i see it me too so the idea of a choice of what you want to wear um should just be you like it you fit in it Mm -hmm. and you buy it or you and and you have it so a gender fluid time is a non-judgmental time and more expressive. So is this going to move forward and evolve and even be bigger? Absolutely. As long as Gen Z is right there, that's a guarantee. They're doing it already. Um, My grandson is a junior in college, and the last time he was here in New York, uh, he wore a great skirt to an event that evening. It it was uh, slender, just above the knee, uh, all sequined. 
And I, I told his dad, my son, I said, you know, maybe you should accompany him because I don't know that everyone in the world is going to be as understanding. And they absolutely will. They you absolutely, so? you know why? Because his spirit wearing that skirt is going to be so happy, positive, Joyous. Yes. People pick up on that. That's they right, absolutely right? do. So far, they have. Of course. So that to me is just giving other people this sort of opportunity to feel his joy yes. and to share the joy. And uh, what could be better than that? I mean, it is so much fun. So is somebody. Is this for everybody? No, I'm not expecting baby boomer men to jump in on this right. one. Not at all. Mm -hmm. um, but they may want to try. Well, they've made us. older people more understanding. Yeah, they, but they, but for men, they may want to try a skincare routine. Yeah, or oh, they and may, they are. Yeah, so it could change the way. Oh yeah. Just in many other ways, but also. When men are in touch with their feminine side, mm -hmm. they don't need a handbook on how to treat women. And so while the gender fluid in fashion part of this doesn't seem important, there's a level of it that brings men and women closer together. So when you're in touch with your feminine, you you respect the feminine when you're in touch with your masculine you respect the masculine so if you see a man nurturing a baby or expressing his feminine through clothes or doing something that would be typically women's mm -hmm. expression they look so sexy. They look so hot in the fact that they... I was here when you were shooting the the woman, uh, the model and her boyfriend mm -hmm. uh, in yep. the same clothes. And it was joyous yep. to, to watch them and to watch him yep. enjoy it. They just, uh, they're, they're absolutely um, spreading uh, a, a non-judgmental, inclusive, yes. um, democratic... Okay, process. you said that. Okay, now, Norma, you, you want some advice for me? Yes. Okay, I want you to run for president. I think you would be so amazing. What? Because you're mm -hmm. so understanding. You know what you'd like to do to improve the world. You're willing to hear both sides. <clears throat> and if you need uh, a backer, <laughs> I have a few dollars. <laughs> I think that's very funny. I think, I, I think one of my favorite comedians that I've been, first of all, comedy right now is what I long for. It I, has been an endangered species. Yeah. So I've been on Netflix every day looking okay. for anything that's going to make me laugh because humor gets you through some of the toughest times. Yes. And so I've come to appreciate again and again Jerry Seinfeld's oh, yeah. incredible mm. genius yeah. and he is non-judgmental mm. but he has the most incredible yeah. visual, visual of, of everything and one of the things he said was and I'm not going to be quoting him correctly is anybody think about the kind of person that thinks that they are good enough, qualified to be president of the United States, which makes them the most powerful person in the whole world. What kind of an ego does that person have to think that they can do that? And I thought... Or, or I could interrupt. I think with some women running, it's to think, to think that they should do that. Yeah. But there is some some aspect of that that is very telling about the kind of person that decides that that's what their their destiny is like mm -hmm. do they really soul search do they really uh, are they really thinking that they are 
that qualified to be the most powerful person in the whole world. And so I'm, I'm a woman who believes in dreaming big dreams mm-hmm. and trying to express them and be, be in that kind of mindset that anything is possible. But I think politics is another another one of these very dark areas it is waiting to be redone dark 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 and it and i i just um am so fortunate to have a creative life and to be in the world that says there's every day is a possibility and so I believe that, and I'm certainly not nearly qualified to, to even think about being in that world, but I... You're as qualified as many now running for no, office. Yes, you are. No, but I think the, be, to be able to affect people in my world and to try whether it's through the schools and students or the or parkland anybody. students to me they've just been exceptional an example of gen z exactly a hundred percent there you are it, the, a year ago i'm from a very small town in nebraska they asked me to speak to the students and uh and so my subject was the importance of nice and I said, in a small town, you have to be nice. If you're not, they're going to tell your parents or your teacher, yeah. somebody, you have to be nice. Right. And how, because of the Parkland students, that the high school student of today has a voice they've never had before. Yeah. Uh, and I think, and they know how to use it. Mm-hmm. I'm very impressed yeah. with high schoolers. Oh, I totally agree with you. That's a great story about the small town. Um, personality. It's very interesting. I always love to talk to Uber drivers. Thank God for Uber oh. because I still don't know how to drive. I failed my test three times. So, <laughs> so I'm always indebted to them. And I always love to know, like, where did you come from? Yeah. How did you get here? How how brave and strong oh, yeah. does a person have to be to leave a country and family often family a small town maybe a village and come here adapt to the culture learn everything mm-hmm. and not just survive but flourish mm-hmm. um and i'm just in awe of people who can do that i'm mm-hmm. sitting in my hometown thinking you know okay <laughs> new york i'm a new yorker but you have to be brave to come here from anywhere, which is why New York is so great, because we do have the bravest. And the stories are so fantastic. And one of the things I hear them say over and over is how nice mm. New Yorkers are. Yes. And I think, well, you know. Uh, it's true. If that's you stop true. them on the street, yes. they're always helpful. Yep. I've never not. Yeah. I've never seen someone who said, no, I can't help yeah. you. Or, and they talk about it and they say, yes, people are very friendly here. They're very helpful. Mm-hmm. And I think that is the coolest. I'm so yeah. happy to hear that. So yes. New York in its largeness has um, some small town. I have to tell yeah. you this story. About just a few weeks ago, a couple was walking down the street or in front of my building singing the song about, um, I like New York in June. How about you? Mm-hmm. And uh, I listened to them. They were so joyful. I joined them in singing, <laughs> I like New York in June. And I said, where are you from? And they were from a small town in Texas. And I thought, and they love New York, mm-hmm. and they were just so enjoying the yeah, city. Yeah. You know? it was lovely to see. Yeah, I I was thinking um, recently about um, I was coming to open the store, the building um, very early, and I come in at six o'clock to because nobody's here, and it was even 
and it's starting sunnier now, so it's not as dark at six. So I was really early. It was. It might have even been like five thirty, and it, so it was still sort of dark, and there was nobody on the street. And I'm opening, and I have all of these things, and I'm carrying, and I'm put my bag down, and and I'm opening, and I thought. I see my bag through the glass in the door, and I'm looking to protect my bag in there because there's nobody on the street. And I thought, I don't really have to do that. I remember a time in the 70s, and I still have the gate up in the ceiling of the front window where you had to have a gate. You had to have two alarm systems, yeah. one for the outer perimeter of the building, one for the inner perimeter building. Wow. And I remember every month, at least once or twice a month, the alarm system would go off. I'd have to come because somebody had broken into the building or was in the building, wait for the police to come, and and have an incident and if I didn't have the gate down forget about my window if I didn't have cameras and all of this and and that after a certain time you had to walk in the middle of the street of New York you wouldn't walk on the sidewalks and I think oh my god and never go to Central Park after sunset (laughs) ever 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 and I think I cannot believe that that memory flashed in my head because only that time could you think about New York in the most desperate ways and there were movies uh, about it at that time now and New York now is could it be better of course it could always be better but it really is just a different temperament mm-hmm. and we have as many immigrants here as we've ever had before and it's and we need them and Absolutely. But all of that is just that I don't know if we've evolved and we're prosperous. I mean, we are a prosperous city. We're a prosperous country. And when there's prosperity, people are less angry and we have more communication. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that people come here because there's opportunity so there's a positive, hopeful feeling. Yes. And so I'm, I'm just so grateful that we are not that, that time when New York was bankrupt and it yes. was a scary place. Yep. Okay, Norma, you have already given us so many fashion firsts. How do you see fashion firsting into the future? Any do's or don'ts? So I, I think that there, there's something very important happening now. At a time when we experience a tremendous amount of stress, there are things that we like as comfort. So there's comfort food, there's um, massages, there's meditation, there are things that center us and make us feel good. And then there are things that we have that are sort of the commodities in our wardrobe. It could be a white t-shirt, it could be a pair of jeans, it could be a leather jack, it could be Mm -hmm. those core pieces that you always have as a go-to where you feel... And interestingly, those core pieces, everything you mentioned, started here in this country. Yeah. And so all of that those are timeless, safe commodities that make us feel good, Mm -hmm. that don't challenge us. A great, comfortable pair of sneakers, uh, whatever whatever it is, and they pretty much don't say fashion first, but they um, support fashion. Mm -hmm. So with those pieces, then you could wear anything if you want to say something else. On the other end of the spectrum, there's the idea of one of a kind, the idea of something like this coat. Mm -hmm. This is a one of a kind coat that, um, everybody loves to have and saves 
those are those special pieces. So I could wear this over any of those pieces we talked about, mm-hmm. the uh, over a T-shirt. And Is jeans. it your own design? Actually, I got this in Morocco. And so I think when I started making clothes, I will tell you everything was in one of a kind because I didn't know how to manufacture two of the same thing. (laughs) I could do it once and then I would create another one, but it wouldn't be exactly the same and they would Mm -hmm. all be different. Um, And I think Gen Z are in that mindset too. We're having 10,000 of the same kind of thing unless it's a commodity or Mm -hmm. something you can have for life. Like the sleeping bag coat is a great sustainability item. You can buy it once, you have it for the rest of your life. You sponge, clean it, done and done or those jeans that you can wash and take care of, have forever, or a great shoe that you like and you just, it works in your wardrobe and you take care of that. So I think that these one-of-a-kind pieces are those special pieces that are joyous pieces, whether Mm -hmm. it's a sequin skirt Mm -hmm. or a coat that is special, or and painted, and, or, yeah, and that, and and other people respond to, mm-hmm. and it spreads joy. I think that's what I am thinking mm-hmm. is what is really the need for the future, or the the reality of what should be done for the future. Yes. So more of these one of a kind bespoke pieces mm-hmm. and a lot of those commodity pieces at different price ranges so Walmart is exists because of its commodities it can make a great t-shirt great underwear great basic pant great and Zara and then there's Amazing. the Zara and but Zara is a little sort of in the middle no i agree yeah. do you know what i mean sure. but i'm talking commodity in in those those get it done good pieces yes. that like a unique clothes approach on t-shirts or what the gap used to be about mm-hmm. that kind of thing i think that there's a time for that now that at different price ranges so everybody can afford those and then you invest in your special pieces, your one-of-a-kind pieces that you should have for life. Mm-hmm. And fashion really is just redefining itself through its gender, uh, um, de-gendering mm-hmm. product, not necessarily creating separations, but blending more, and creating beautiful pieces that are collectible that you want to have for life. Fantastic. And now, before you tell me to get out, Mm. one of your favorite expressions, I should point out, (laughs) I think I should get out. (laughs) Well, I, I... First of all, thank you so much for for doing this. Um, I, I appreciate everything that you have done for the fashion industry, have done for me uh, personally, and this was so great that you um, are taking the time to do this special podcast for me. So thank you so much, Mary Lou. Oh, thank you, Norma.